Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast, the official podcast of Pineland, broadcasting from an undisclosed location deep inside Pineland, where we discuss faith, family, finances, firearms, and freedom, and everything else in between, with those who believe in living free and living out the values that made this country free. My name is Paul LeFevre. I'm here with my Ranger buddy, Mike Blackburn. Uh, and today is Friday, February 18, 2022. Uh, today we have one of our blacksmith authors, uh, retired Colonel Larry Schmidt of the USMC. Uh, we're excited to have him today. Uh, we're also excited to have just finished uh, our first Irregular Warfare lecture out at Camp McCall with uh, the cadre out there. Um, I'm pleased to announce that it went very well, and uh, Colonel Schmidt was uh, well received. So, sir, it's a great it's a great honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, this is a special occasion. I mean, it's not very often we have the opportunity to bring a a, a Marine into the G base. You know, this is awesome. Hoorah! <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean the Army has the hua. Yeah. And the Marines have the oorah. Yeah, I, right. I don't know why we have the difference. Yeah. I, I always wondered. I, this is a strange way to start the pie, podcast, but yeah. I don't know if you know the difference. I do not. <laughs> Semper Fi. Semper Fi. That's it. But uh, today we had um, a, a great lecture on uh, Larry's book, Fire in the Jungle. Uh, so for our listeners, uh, it's one of our blacksmith uh, publishing books, Fire in the Jungle, subtitled, uh, one of the most successful unconventional warfare campaigns in U.S. history. Uh, so if you haven't picked up that volume, shame on you. You should get it. Uh, it is basically, uh, Larry did the heavy lifting. He went back and uh, he took, uh, it captured everything that uh, Colonel uh, Wendell Fertig did on the island of Mindanao fighting the Japanese uh, during World War II. And he articulates for us how he was able to uh, gather uh, disparate bands of Moros, uh, Christians on the island there, Filipinos, and the unsurrendered, and those who needed a job. And he brought them all together, starting with a handful of men and ending the war uh, at the time of the invasion anyway in 44 with about 30,000 people under his command. So uh, that should give you a reason why you'd want to pay attention to anything in the book. And then not only that, but uh, uh, Colonel Schmidt has a uh, storied career. He started off uh, with the 5th uh, Marines in Vietnam in 1968 uh, as a platoon commander. So he knows firsthand what it's like to slug it out with insurgents uh, fighting the Viet Cong. Uh, and then he finished his career uh, following uh, serving at uh, Pendleton and Lejeune and then D.C., uh, commanding the 8th Marine Regiment in Desert Storm. Uh, and then he retired in 1994. So, uh, you know, two and a half uh, decades of service, uh, uh, a wealth of knowledge, uh, distilled knowledge there. So I was, I feel a lot smarter having sat through that lecture. I don't know what that says. I mean, I'm not a smartest guy, the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I certainly, there's a lot of material that I can like steal. You know? Well, I think, and, and let's be honest, I mean, uh, with what's been going on lately, especially with the disastrous withdrawal and uh, 20 years of slugging it out uh, in Afghanistan, um, people right now are really hungry to find out what did we do wrong? And one of the places that you go to find answers is people like Colonel Schmidt because he's he, you know he's he's bringing the the wealth of uh, the, wind, the 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 resistance movement on on, uh, on in the Philippines and and why that was successful. So we, we really need to be looking at people like uh, Colonel Fertig and trying to figure out 
you know, what did we do wrong and what did he do right and how can we fix this next time? Would you say that's right, Colonel uh, Schmidt? I would. I think uh, the key thing with Colonel Ferdig was he, he really knew what his mission was, what his objective was. Uh, commanders in Afghanistan, those who commanded there, have said since then, we never really knew what our objective was, and we didn't know if we were winning or losing. Um, True. He, he knew what he had to do in order to survive and create an organization that could help advance the objectives and the missions of his superior officer, uh, General MacArthur. And in the end, he was able to be successful enough that when MacArthur reinvaded the Philippines, they were fully stood up, his guerrilla bands, and they're ready to ready to fight and make a very major contribution to the success of the American invasion. Why, why, uh, why was he successful? He was an unusual personality. Um, not he wasn't disliked, but he wasn't one of these people that the that others would automatically follow. He was a mining engineer. He wasn't built and designed to lead, you know, formations of troops in combat kind of thing, which he didn't do on Mindanao in, in any regard. Uh, but he had a certain steadfastness, uh, an ability to look another person in the eye, negotiate with them, understand what it is they wanted, because everybody that was on the island of Mindanao truly had something different that they wanted personally. Some of it could have been ambition, something politics after after it's all over, some just to survive, some to rebuild a business. But he knew that, that how to pull these people together and get what he needed out of them, their skills, their knowledge, uh, most importantly, their allegiance to the cause. Uh, he was frankly aided and abetted by the Japanese in that regard because they, they did everything they could to destroy the the bond between the Filipino people and the United States. Uh, we're very fortunate that the verdict was fortunate that he understood the history of the United States in the Philippines. Uh, we, we went in in 1898 in the war with Spain. Um, and after we won that war, we took over the country and managed it in a very enlightened way by there were some early, early problems. There was a resistance, but the people that resisted the Americans at that time cast their lot with us, loyally cast their lots with us. And down the line, that made a huge difference. Yeah, I like uh, something you were you're saying today that really resonated with me is uh, among, uh, among the many things qualities and fur tickets he was able to cast a vision mm -hmm. uh, like a good leader he was able to kind of see the, the whole the something like you have all these parts mm -hmm. just kind of be able to put it together and just kind of communicate that to people yeah. and uh he uh one of the things you shared too also is he was able to uh see how uh, everybody could work together mm -hmm. to fight the common enemy instead of just squabbling and uh you know, I mean, I'd like to, I mean, just I go off on a tangent right now and talk about that because we do have our enemies, national enemies, and we're spending a lot of time fighting our, you know, each other instead of focusing our energies like Fertig did towards, hey, look, when this place is over, when this dust settles, we're all just going to be Filipinos. We want to be free. Yeah. But if we do nothing, then we're just going to be slaves. Yeah, and, I think I think that, you know, the two competing uh, groups of folks that, uh, Colonel Fertig was able to put together, which, I mean, li li listen, the Muslim population on Mindanao and the Christian population on Mindanao, uh, I don't think it would be light to say that these people absolutely hated each other. That's right. Um, but he was able to unite them. I mean, I have no idea how he was able to do that. But when you're able to put those two groups and get them working together mm -hmm. against a common enemy, that's 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 a pretty big accomplishment. How, how did he do that, uh, Colonel Schmidt? You know, probably the, the oversimplified answer was he, he provided the example. It was very clear that he was objective. He was neutral. Uh, he, wasn't, he, he was Christian, but he wasn't pro-Christian. 
uh, he, he wasn't anti-Muslim. He wanted to, to be able to advance their interests within the realm of anything that was reasonable. Uh, and he was able to make the case that if, if you don't stop killing each other, the Japanese are going to be here forever. And that's just going to be it. Yeah. Uh, and if you, if you don't like living with those other guys, you're definitely not going to be like living with them under potentially permanent Japanese. I mean, he was willing to put in the time. You were talking about that yes. today. Like, uh, you know, we might think, well, just I, I have a quick meeting. You know, I'll head down that's the road. Right. I'll have a quick meeting, you know, a couple hours. You know, hopefully mm-hmm. we'll get some resolution and I'll be out of there. I mean, th- this was like a, a pretty serious key leader engagement when he's going into talking to these yes. uh, Muslim chieftains. I mean, uh, how much time was Wendell Fertig, you know, willing to, to, to spend in order to get this, this group of people on, on board with, with this uh, objective? I'd say the short answer is as long as it took. I mean, literally. Uh, people that had negotiated with the Moros historically said that there is no easy, quick negotiation. But, uh, and, it, and we see that today, American business people, when they go to China or Japan, either one, it's a very, very long negotiation. Uh, I, w- I would talk to my boss that negotiated in Japan all the time, and he would make five, six, seven trips to Japan. Each one was social, getting to know each other. Each side knew what they wanted, if you were negotiating with an American or European, you'd have made one trip, maybe two, negotiated what had to be done, and signed it. But with, with the Asian, generally the Asian um, culture, these things just take time. And then you, you fold the, the morals into that who don't trust you to begin with and have never wanted to be part of the nation as you know, a Filipino citizen. They probably don't even think of themselves as Filipinos. So to convince them, uh, who have been there for centuries, literally 2,000 years, uh, that does not happen overnight. Why do you think he was successful? I think he was successful because he was patient and he recognized almost anybody who talks about him talks about his not so much wisdom and judgment, but his his patience and understanding, mm. that he recognized that every single individual has their own dignity, the Filipinos in particular, and the Moros, have dignity that you just don't uh, abuse. You don't abuse their concept of family, you don't abuse their concept of, of loyalty to, the, to each other. Uh, you certainly don't go in and violate members of the family, in particular the, the women. He was really ahead of his time. I mean, we obviously we get our um, our doctrine today from the greats like Colonel Fertig, yeah. um, but intuitively he just knew these things. He was he was a very yeah. astute businessman. He was a very good businessman, but I will also say that he had uh, he had a good example to follow, and that was General John J. Pershing. Pershing was there on three different tours. One is a lieutenant colonel. In that tour, his commanding officer told him because they had been fighting the Moros uh, tooth and nail. The Moros respected the Americans because when they came in, they got, got whipped. And the, the, the thing is, you, you had guns versus knives. And so the, the Moros knew when the Americans showed up, they meant business. But when it was all said and done, after the fighting, the Americans would be fair. They would say, okay, we had a fight, we won, and now let's negotiate where we go from here. They didn't come in and, and you know, strong cool things. Yeah. yeah. And so, but you had Pershing, who was, was told by his boss, go to the Moros, make peace with them. I don't want to keep fighting them. And Pershing left all of his weapons behind. He went, he started walking up the path into the mountains and walked as far as he could into the heart of then moral land with the moral sanctuary. No Westerner had ever been there before, ever. He went in unarmed to show that, hey, I, you know, if you're going to take my head off, take my head off, but I'm not here to fight. 
I don't intend to kill anybody. And he negotiated, and, and when it was all said and done, the Moros were some of the strongest supporters uh, of Pershing. And that carried over historically. They, they, it just, they became loyal to the whole idea of America and American leadership. So that even when you had very, very strong moral leaders, they would come to him and say, I really want to take this band of warriors and go out and raise hell there. I want you to be in charge because it'll look better. Basically. Basically. What they didn't understand was <laughs> Ferdig was not going to, that's not the way he's going to play, play the game. Uh, and he was finally able to convince them it's to your benefit. And he, that, that was the key to working with the Moros. This is what you need, and I can demonstrate that. Because without me, you're not going to get submarines. Without submarines, you're not going to get bullets and guns. Uh, you're not going to be able to do what you want to do. So you have to have me, but you can only have me if I'm the commanding officer. Yeah, I like on that point, uh, something you brought out that's really interesting is um, there's, a, there's an old Napoleonic axiom that says never interrupt your enemy while he's making a mistake, <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, another one that we use, that, uh, we use in the book is uh, if chance will crown me, then chance will make me king without my stir. And so that's just from, you know, uh, Hamlet. But the idea is, actually, I'm sorry, from Macbeth. But the idea is Morgan was, a, you know, someone that really hated the Moros. Yep. And he saw Fertig for somebody that he could use right. as a stepping stone to get right. to where he wanted to go. And I think from uh, my reading of your book and from your lecture, I see Fertig as somebody who was patient enough tactically. He was patiently, uh, tactically patient to let things develop and allow Morgan to use him in a way That's right. and then dispose of Morgan when he had achieved his ends, which I think is, you know, a master stroke yes. of strategy. And uh, he used Louis Morgan as a useful idiot, mm -hmm. you know, and then sent him on his way, which is awesome because if you look yeah. at how often, I mean, it says so much about his brain power. Mm -hmm. And about how, uh, you know, there really are instances. Well, we may not have useful idiots, but at least stop and kind of look at the big picture, and kind of not uh, interrupt mm -hmm. uh, a good chain of events, and just say, "Well, hey, this is kind of going that way, and let me just step in at the right time." And so that's why I think, um, if I could just chime in, I think that's why he was brilliant and he made it work because he he used. Those useful idiots. Yeah. He, he was he was socially astute. I mean, he yeah. really he really could he could really read the room. I yeah, mean, he yes. kind of knew who his, his uh, the folks were that he was dealing with, and kind of mm -hmm. he he was probably the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he just let these lessers sort of do themselves, and he was uh, knew how to how to captivate um, his audience and, and uh, the the cultural uh, intelligence that he had. Yeah. Like you said, uh, I mean, you would say I'm sure that he knew the, uh, the moral culture, the yep. Filipino culture. He knew uh, how uh, the strong ties of the people had to the church. Yes. And then uh, one of his you know, bigger recruitment vessels were the church. I mean, would you say that's true? That's correct. He, he, he knew to win the church over and to be able to convince the people of the church, most importantly, the women, the wives within the church, who would then influence their husbands, the men, uh, he went to Doña Carmen, who was the, you know, very wealthy. The, the, those, that family owned a very large chunk of the north of Mindanao. And it was all at that time um, devoid of, of Japanese. There weren't anybody up there. There weren't any there. And so that became kind of a stronghold. But he, he knew that if he could get her on his side, because people who lived there don't stand Spanish way. They're the, the leading family, and that's the kind of do what they think is right. They're the leader, if they will. And, uh, and he was able to, to convince her that he was able to provide the leadership needed. She was able to influence the church, which in turn influenced the par parishioners that were there to help the, the guerrillas. Mm -hmm. 
And as an aside, along with, with that connection to the church came the priests, which you'd say, well, where, where would the priests fit into any of this? They were very influential. Uh, for some reason, the Japanese left them alone. But if a priest came into the village and made the case to support the guerrillas, you can virtually be certain that the village was going to su support the, the guerrillas. They were American priests. They weren't the, the old Spanish priests. They weren't the Filipino priests. So the American uh, brand, if you will, had survived the Japanese attack and the American surrender. Um, that they still, America had treated them very well after they took took the Philippines from the Spanish, had prom had given them a commonwealth, not a colony, and had promised and made good on that promise immediately after the war that they would be a sole self-standing nation state. For them, that was a huge promise. Sort of a, a network that was just left behind. I mean, it was a net, network that Colonel Furti took advantage of. Was the uh, was the church? Would would you say that's yeah, true? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and and the church had been been, of course, influenced. Well, it was the Spanish when they came. There was no Catholic church uh, uh, in the nation until the, the Spanish came in what fifteen ninety eight something like that. Um, and so they had three hundred fifty years to in press upon the population Spanish customs and Spanish mores and you know, how you do things legally, how you do things in the church. Um, so the, the church was very influential, just as it is in, in, in the Spanish nation, for example. Yeah, I have. Uh, uh, one of the things that uh, was so amazing today, too, is how not only did he use the church to uh, gain this recruitment, and, you know, leverage the wives, like you were talking about earlier, uh, to not only get them to church, right, and it still happens today, but then they get them into the ranks. And get the men into the church. Yeah, yeah, I mean. He told, he told the guerrillas, <laughs> go to church. He didn't yeah. tell the morals, go to, you know. Yeah. He told the, 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 uh, the Catholics, go to church. Yeah. Yep. And they uh, did. But the, uh, I love the, the way he used, uh, I mean, this is a duh thing, but he, he used the pre-existent, the pre-war military districts. Yes. And he stood that up and used, that was his, really his sectors, if mm -hmm. you will, uh, under his area command. That's right. I mean, that's how we would call it today. Right. He was virtually the area commander, and he had, I think, six subordinate commanders. Mm -hmm. So you call them sectors. I mean, you could yeah. loosely translate them to call them that. divisions, but not a division in any army or military right. force sense. It was just, like you say, it was a division of the land, this is the territory. territory, right? Yeah. But he uh, he was, you know, the, the what were the Japanese? I mean, it was really kind of fun what you were talking about today. The Japanese really had a, a totally different idea of what was going on underneath their feet. Very much so. Yeah. Uh, why was that? Was 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 Wendell Fertig able to sort of manipulate that, or was that just maybe some of their own? I just think he intelligence just lacking, or oh yeah, the Japanese, the Japanese truly believe. And this wasn't a religious Shinto kind of thing. It, uh, it, it, it was a cultural imperative that came out of uh, uh, the emperor in Japan was God. If he wanted you to die for him, by gosh, you're going to go die for him. And be happy. That's your duty. They were able to pass down all the way through the ranks in, the, in their military and through the, through the entire society. Um, that we're right, we're right, and if, if these people, uh, these people who call themselves American, uh, the terms they use were it's a sewer country. These people are just sewage that have come out of a country that that we don't even respect at all for any reason. Um, the Filipinos had seen Americans up close, knew that they were good people. By and large, they were good people and fair. And the Japanese came in and said, we are right. You will believe us. And if you don't, you'll pay the price. Well, my goodness, that, it sounds like almost like a, a, you know, 
religious ferocity of some kind, but it, the Shinto religion isn't like that at all. Um, so it has to be something that was in the culture, deep in the culture. And I think it all stems from and the, the way the, the, the entire nation is stratified. The emperor's at the top. Uh, and you'll recall after the war, uh, MacArthur convinced the American government, no, 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 no. We, we're not here to depose the emperor. If you depose the emperor, this fight is going to go on forever. Uh, we'll never get Japan pacified as long as the emperor's alive and they, they're fighting for him. And so said, you know, the, the emperor will stay in office. He's uh, in power. Uh, and he's still there today. That, that's not saying God, obviously, but. But that was, a, that was a thread that was inviolable. Uh, and it, I think Ferdig, not regarding the emperor necessarily, but, but Ferdig recognized that this is the intractable nature mm. and it wasn't going to change. And so if you can't make peace with it and get along with it, like you could with the Moros, let's say, then you have to, you know, what, what, what's the old idea of turning turning that energy back in on itself. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, I mean, uh, the point you made. Yeah, uh, we, we were talking is, about Iraq. I mean, I, I hate to, uh, <laughs> it, I, we were, you know, I apologize for, for stuff. I think you're going to say fine. the same thing, but I mean. Maybe. You uh, never know. Or Afghanistan. Know. <laughs> or Afghanistan. Or we'll Afghanistan. See. But I mean, I think, in, I'm thinking in, in, in like Iraq. I mean, I, I served in Iraq. Paul served in Iraq. Um, you know, all three of us did. Um but that's the mistake we really made that we could have learned from mm-hmm. MacArthur mm-hmm. It, with Japan. I mean, we went in and just fired everybody. That's right. Yeah, we don't learn from our mistakes, though. And uh, <laughs> we, you know, they we were don't. they were smart enough to kind of realize that these you know we need to put we need to keep these people in place mm-hmm. and just kind of turn them and get them you know doing the right thing rather than turning them into enemies. Right. Yeah, yeah, that was, so that yeah. was yeah yeah that, it, it, exactly. that's where I was going. Okay. Yes. Is, uh, because uh, like Bremer, mm-hmm. right in Iraq. Yeah. Uh, the Japanese just, you know, they uh, uh, they fell into the trap of just removing the actual infrastructure that held right. the society together, Destroyed. and it descended into chaos, and, and there was a, uh, you know, anarchy, right. and uh, you know, they not only did they just control the coasts and the major towns, but uh, they would they, you know, did venture, dared enough to go on down the roads, mm-hmm. but they were. This is where I was going. Is they did all of Fertig's recruiting. Exactly. Uh, by their mayhem, by their raping and pillaging. The best recruiters we had. Yeah, just yeah. filled the, they boistered the ranks of uh, Fertig. I mean, people just wanted to get the revenge. And his all he had to do was really just direct. He was the directing spirit of mm-hmm. this resistance. And he just had to, you know, kind of massage the violence and, and kind of ratchet up and ratchet it back. And that's because of the Japanese failed counterinsurgency yep. uh, tactics they use. I, I, I want to get your thoughts on on this, uh, Colonel Schmidt. I mean, I, I'm thinking uh, Afghanistan now. We're going to jump. We're going to jump forward a little bit. But in Afghanistan, you know, we really didn't have a guy like Colonel Fertig that was in theater, remaining in theater yep. for the long haul. Yep. Sort of keeping track of how things were going and ebbing and flowing and where things needed to be adjusted and who we needed to talk to, where we had this sort of rotational thing where every commander's coming in with uh, their idea of what they think their strategy is. And there's no real sort of um, overall reaching sort of objective. Um, I think that just, I mean, I'm I'm looking at this. It's like, you know, no wonder we didn't do very well. When you look at people like, uh, or you look at the uh, Mindanoa campaign, uh, as opposed to Afghanistan, not not really getting uh, in with these uh, tribes, not not really attaching to them, understanding them, the yeah. Taliban was not loved. Correct. So we were kind of had a thing that kind of replicated what the Japanese were doing. We had a lot of people in Afghanistan that were not fond of the Taliban. That's right. We should have been able to take advantage of that a little better than what we did. I agree. I think that's true. I, uh, and when you read what the, the, you know, the unclassified, declassified versions of 
what the, the commanders in Afghanistan have, have had to say, have written about. Uh, they say, we never had a strategy. We never really knew what our objective was. Well, for any senior general to come out after something so big as Afghanistan and say, I really didn't know what we were there for or what we were supposed to accomplish. That's, That's so true. That yeah. is very frightening. To yeah, me it's kind of telling. It's very yeah. telling. Uh, for one thing, it tells me something about... There was a book written a few years ago called The Generals, and it talked about all of the generals that had been fired in World War II by the handful. Uh, they, didn't, they, they didn't live up to what they were supposed to be doing and couldn't do what they had been asked to do. They were let go, and new guys brought in who would get the job done. Uh, you don't want to see commanders fired willy-nilly, but on the other hand, the, what the book made clear was we don't fire generals these days. Haven't for, haven't since Vietnam. Now, I haven't read that book, but I'm assuming um, these generals were let go uh, for accountability reasons because they were not getting it done, they period. get the job done. That's I mean, there right. was there was accountability. That's right. And that's the word. Yeah. That, in fact, uh, which, which we're lacking now. Which we're lacking. Wow. But they, uh, that doesn't mean these aren't talented people. Mm. That doesn't mean they're not patriotic uh, and even good leaders within their units. The problem is, is that they won't stand up to the National Command Authority and say, you've got to do better than this because we can't go over and commit American lives and spend a count of the amount of, of ordinance we're doing on the Afghans in this case without some clear idea of why we're doing it and some objective in mind. Where do, where do we, 20 years later, we still didn't know where we wanted to be. So when it came time to pull out, and that was... Subjective, okay, pick a date. Um, and the way we went, the, the previous administration had, had, without the Karzai government even involved, negotiated American withdrawal. Didn't even tell Karzai, the president of Afghanistan, what we were doing. And then said, release these, what, 5,000 prisoners? Bad guys. They were bad guys. Release them out onto the public because the Taliban wants them. Okay, so that... That's a bad start to an exit withdrawal. And then to not plan the withdrawal any better. So, yeah, you, you can look at all the cast of characters who are involved in that and say, we just, we just did not live up to what you would think American values would be. Yeah, you could see just all kinds of uh, examples that we could have taken from Wendell Fertig, <laughs> and applied in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, yes. and we would have done a lot better. Yeah, they'll even go. It's 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 amazing the amount yeah. of lessons that are in that that campaign. Yeah, you that's know. true. I mean, things he did right. He got lucky. Yep, yep. He had I mean, tell us tell us about some of the times he yeah. just got lucky. Well, the the Germans have an interesting concept of uh, command leadership, and and luck is literally on on your fitness report. How lucky is this <laughs> commander? Literally, it's on there. <laughs> And uh, uh, because they understand that there's a, that little little piece that's unmeasurable. Yeah. It's just unmeasurable. The same we talked about in the talk today about some of the, the couple of times that Fertig really got lucky. Um, over the, and it just got lucky over simple little things that you would never anticipate, like the, the, the time he was negotiating with a moral chieftain that said, oh, I'm leaving, I'm not. I'm not going to support you anymore, which would have been a disaster for him because he could have lost all the moral support. And about that time, in comes this magazine. He puts it in front of the Moro, and it's it's got King Saud on it. it. Says, "I support America." In discussion, that was luck. Period. Yes, that was luck. Pure <laughs> luck. But uh, but <clears throat> Pertig knew enough to go out and get more magazines. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I think that almost almost ties into uh, you, you discussed the fact that Wendell Fertig had this believing that he was sort of right man, right time, you know, yep. on a mission, sort of from God. Yep. Um, and then to have that magazine show up, and those other times that he was just lucky, yep. it almost it almost would 
reinforce his belief. That's right. Yeah. And when you stop that, when you think about people like MacArthur, uh, George Patton, they truly, in every case, each case, thought they were destined to be great, destined to be at that point in history, at that place in time. Um, Ferdig had some of those same characteristics. I don't. I bet if you were to ask any American general from Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, you mm. you wouldn't find any of them would say, "I have been led here by yeah. something that I don't comprehend." This was my purpose in this life. This is my purpose in life. Yeah. My purpose is to be here. Yeah, with the um, Afghan people. On that note, uh, Ferdig also knew Mindanao very well. He knew he the island. Uh, as an engineer officer. That's right. Uh, and so there's an old uh, stoic expression that luck is the combination of preparation and opportunity. That's right. Yeah. And so I also see stoic, uh, that stoic ideal in Fertig. That mm -hmm. He was kind of an opportunist. He was. Of yeah. sorts. And he was he just had yeah. right place, right time, yeah. Yeah. and the, the cards are just falling, and he just kind of goes with it. Of yeah. course, to, you know, this presupposes that he had some, some moxie, mm -hmm. some guts, mm -hmm. and yeah. then, you know, actually, I believe you would agree he loved the people. I think he genuinely did. Yeah. I mean, I you got to have that. He had a respect for them. Yeah. That they, you know, that they sensed. They you know. Yeah, people picked that up. They yeah. do. Yeah. And, yeah, and they, was, they obviously picked real. it up in him. He was yeah. real. Yeah. It, it, he was real, and, they, and he cared about them. Uh, and uh, a bunch of things you brought out. One, I mean, this could go everywhere, but uh, he had so many challenges. Mm -hmm. But one of those that you talked about, I think you would agree, is uh, how he overcame the hurdle of logistics. Mm. Uh, yes. You know, given his, his army weapons and mm -hmm. bullets, and could you just talk us through how those, how that, how he uh, hurdled those How challenging that yeah. was in that environment. Yeah, it... Um, you know all the basics. You've got to got to feed the people. Yeah. Not just the not just the gorillas, but ensure that the people that are supporting you have a way. If you can't feed them, yeah. At least they have a way to get food. You know, in some yeah. manner. Um, he saw supplies as necessary to, to keep the ship afloat. Yeah. He knew that without the basics, radios, ammunition, rifles. Uh, medical supplies that he was not going to be successful. He knew he had to have those. He knew he could never get enough of them. Yeah. But he he understood what the logistics meant. Now there was just the day to day logistics. You got to get all of these supplies three hundred miles inland through the Japanese lines over the mountain through the swamp. Get them to the people who you're trying to get them to. Uh, that's a that's a straightforward logistics problem. Yeah, and then how? Uh, just for our listeners, uh, he was primarily uh, externally supported by submarine, that's which right. is very unconventional. Very unconventional. This they is kind bring of in much. yeah. This was kind of uh, probably it was on an island, of course, mm -hmm. but just getting resupplied by sub yes. is kind of cool. It's really scary. Cool. Very scary. Because you got to be on the beach. Especially the commander of the sub. To get it. Yeah. yeah. Commander of the sub. You got, those guys had real cojones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they just really some did. of the metrics we've looked at is uh, they brought not only men and material that can bring people in, be people right. out, uh, beans and bullets. Mm -hmm. uh, just that aspect of uh, using the subs, having his yes. guys on the beach to... Uh, you know, do the, the bona fides yes. to bring mm -hmm. it, whatever that looked like. Just, uh, that was but, huge. Yeah, they say yeah. it's not tactics that wins these big campaigns, it's logistics. I it's mean, logistics. this guy had to be yeah. sort of a master at the, all of that in a very challenging environment. This is not going down to the, you know, Walmart and picking up yeah. what you need. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's just, I mean, it's totally different than that. Yeah. And, and the, the, the larger benefit, the larger issue was what the supplies meant. Okay, so on an average for that, that three-year period, the average uh, gorilla got 41 pounds of supplies. That's total over the years. Total over the years. Wow. Yeah, that's nothing. And you, you, you go up to the average soldier and say, how much did your pack weigh? How much did your, your you know, mm. average, 
And they'll tell you 100 pounds. Yeah. I mean, really 100 pounds to more. Right. You guys know. Once you get the ammo and everything else yeah, in there. Yeah, all the stuff's yeah. got to be in there. <clears throat> and so you say, well, okay, for three years I got, got dump supplies that would fill half your pack. Yeah, they got one small ruck. One small ruck. <laughs> That's right. right. What we call a day ruck. The day, day ruck, ruck, yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. got to last the entire, you know, the entire war. That's right. Yeah, it's going to last you the whole time. Now. Some of the other uh, challenges, I mean, this was amazing. A guy just thought outside the box. Yeah. I mean, you often say that, like, hey, if you knew, you want to think outside the box, you have to know what the box looks like. I believe he knew that. But another obstacle you brought out is he paid his guys. He had to pay them. Yes. Uh, so uh, I believe he made his own money. Made their own money. Printed. I mean. And the fact that you could even print. Yeah, in the middle of the jungle. When you stop and think of it, uh, he ran, he ran, a an administrative office, in a very business like way and a very military like way, um, off box tops and the back back sides of letters you found odd size. Mm-hmm. There wasn't anything standard uh, standard about it. Mm-hmm. Training the people, uh, every time they moved, he had to be ready to move his headquarters which meant they had to move all that stuff. You couldn't just take a, a chip or a thumb drive. You had to take boxes and boxes of paper and move it. If, or you're, hide it, or if, hide if it. you're a Japanese commander mm-hmm. and you're uncovering the gorilla's money system, mm-hmm. what's that telling you? I mean, they're not shooting at you. These no. people are transacting business that's, that's right. with a... Different currency than what you're supposed to be using on this on, on this island. Yeah. Or yeah. you're a Japanese commander. You walk into your office first thing in the morning, and there sitting on your desk is a matchbook. On the matchbook, it has IWRM. IWRM. I will return mm. MacArthur. And you're the, you're the Japanese uh, general, and you look down, and there's a matchbook. That obviously came from off island, and it says, "I'm returning, MacArthur." You know that's got to be in your brain all the time that this stuff is getting in. Mm. The Japanese at one point believed that the, they always estimate overestimated what the subs were bringing. Mm. They once said, "Oh, they you know they had proof positive it was in their intelligence reports that three wings for aircraft had come in." Well, that was. Insane. And you could you could see, I mean, if, if you're the enemy, I mean, you're going to be looking, considering worst-case scenarios. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the propaganda is so good. I mean, these guys have their own money system. Yep. They've, they've got, they've got uh, uh, marketing. Yep. You know, they've got matchboxes with their name, you know, the, the, their logos <laughs> on it floating <laughs> all over the place. Things are not going well for them. I mean, they're probably thinking, we're losing this thing. This thing is not looking good. Well, and the Americans are bringing in life magazines that talk about the march across the Pacific. Right. So every time a sub came in, it brought brought a stack of magazines, probably, you know, 10 weeks worth, that talked Mm -hmm. about the victory here, Mm -hmm. number of Japanese uh, ships sunk here. The the psychological battle, I guess, is what I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really... It's, it's more than just guys doing things. I mean, the psychological right. effects that, that Wendell Fertig was able to mm-hmm. dispense is, is pretty phenomenal. Right. And the, the Japanese would, would, would come into a village, and they would uh, broadcast their pep talk, which was nothing more than, you people better do what we, got, we want you to do, or you're dead. You know, that was their pep talk. Hurrah for the emperor. <laughs> Down with those American dogs. They would leave. In would come, because the Japanese didn't stay in the village, of course. In would come, the the, uh, the not in that was already there. The, the, the villagers would pull out of hiding their communication equipment, and all the villagers would gather around and listen to, not not Roosevelt's fireside chats. They'd listen to uh, reports of how things were going mm-hmm. in the Pacific, and at the end of every one of those broadcasts. Um, MacArthur would would come on and say, "I'm returning. I'm, I'm coming be back. back. I'm, I'm coming. coming back. I'm coming back. It's inevitable." Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's and psychologically, yeah, and and that has to cause people to hang on longer, or to say, you know, I'm casting my I'm casting my lot with them. 
I had uh, another thought as you were talking today and just now is the um, among the other many challenges, I'm kind of looking at that, that aspect. But one of those you picked out today is uh, uh, MacArthur, of course, was running the, the show from all, you know, all of the islands yes. in perspective, uh, his, his own UW campaign from Australia. And uh, one of his orders he gave was to, the lie low yes. order. And uh, I, I wonder if you could just elaborate on how uh, you know, Fertig took that. Um, what, did they, what did they do with that? Fertig understood it, but he also understood that the people that they were recruiting were coming aboard to be guerrillas because they could get a gun. And they could go kill Japanese. Um, there was a lot of desire for revenge throughout the islands. The Japanese had brutalized the people. Had uh, you know, you could look at your own family as a Filipino and say, "I lost my dad. They took my wife and put her in a brothel. They took my daughter and raped her." They wanted blood, and they wanted to go kill Japanese. But the Japanese were very clear for every. For every Japanese soldier that is killed, we will kill 100 people. And it varied between 100 and 200, but, but it was a very sizable price to pay so that if, if, if you didn't lie low, the lie low policy meant don't go out and bell the tiger, don't go out and tweak his, pull his tail, tweak his nose. Uh, every now and then, poke him a little bit, you know, keep him, keep him aware that you're there, but don't let him find you. It's this, this pillow defense we talked mm -hmm. about. It, uh, just let them think they're making progress against you, and then you just kind of melt away into the, into the hinterland, into the jungles. So that the Lilo policy, MacArthur and his officers on his staff were absolutely adamant mm. that they were certain if you let unleash the gorillas that it was going to be all over. For one yeah. thing, they'd be outgunned, outshot, they'd run out of ammunition, the Japanese would come for them, they would wipe out entire villages. Yeah. Um, and so it would be very clear that America can't, can't help you and probably is not your future. Um, yeah, they're, they're giving their lives for the Americans and all they're doing is being defeated. That's right. MacArthur understood this. Yes. Uh, Wendell Fertig understood that, stood this. But the way he solved the problem, the dilemma you were talking about, is this pillow effect. Yes. Now, how, how does that work again? Uh, basically, you let the Japanese think they're engaging you. You ensure that you're not being engaged near your village, and you don't kill a bunch of them. You just, you just keep popping off some rounds, popping off some rounds, and they keep after you, keep after you. Um, you know, draw them away from their objective, which may have been the village, whatever. But you don't, what you don't want to do is draw a Japanese patrol to your village mm. and then kill them to the man. Because with absolute certainty, the next thing that's going to happen within the next day or two is the retaliation. Is a retaliation, and that village will disappear. You know, the people will at that point say, oh, they'll all, they will disappear into the jungle uh, to make the Japanese even madder. It sounds a lot like what we would watch uh, or what we would experience the Taliban doing in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, a lot of people serving in Afghanistan knows. I mean, they've never, they never seen a Taliban. Yeah. They were in firefights. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. were engaging. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, the Taliban were very good at not getting decisively engaged. Mm -hmm. uh, the Viet Cong were good at that. And, uh, in Vietnam, you'd, think you were making some progress uh, and then you realize that all these people you thought you were protecting knew where all the booby traps were. Miraculously, they never lost their legs. Even the Karabawas, carab their water buffalo, never stepped on them. Hmm. So they knew where to guide things and they just waited for the Americans to come through and boom, hmm. you know. So, you know, they kept drawing you in because once that happened, you want to go kill somebody. You want to go find those guys. Uh, but you never really find them. Mm. You never really find so them. When, so, uh, you know, the other thing you were talking about today, which was really interesting, was um, how much of the Japanese military effort 
Wendell Fertig was able to divert from other mm-hmm. places in theater. Yes. Just because of this this technique. I mean, yeah. this, I'm here, I'm a threat, yep. but you just never can find me. That's right. Yeah. And they finally put the full weight of their force on Gennaro up to find him. And just in the nick of time, we were talking about his luck about that time, the first American bombers appeared over Mindanao and dropped some bombs on the Japanese headquarters, uh, which caused them to, to pull off. You know, they had they really had him surrounded. They had him. Uh, he may have gotten away, but he wouldn't have been effective any longer. So the timing was perfect for for the arrival of the Americans. Uh, but they did. They they kept they they tied down two Japanese divisions. And that's a lot of folks. That's a lot of folks. Yeah. And there, lot were of folks. there were something like 60,000 Japanese on Mindanao when the war began. Just there, yeah. working, doing things, businesses. Two division less that uh, we did not encounter at Iwo Jima. That's correct. You or other used, islands. Yep, you could have put those two could on have Okinawa. You could totally have changed Canal. the yeah. outcomes. Yep. Yeah, that's us volumes. Yeah. Yeah, and then... Um, Something that uh, came out in your lecture also is uh, that it segues from that is because of the effectiveness of Fertig's command, it, as, as you said, uh, when you know MacArthur was uh, initially the, in the planning, uh, Mindanao was supposed to be the uh, the first landed, yes. if I if I'm correct. That's correct. And then because it was doing so well, they decided to <laughs> bypass. Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure. I've I've yeah. always on the island. Yeah. I would like that, but. Yeah, yeah Fertig's probably thinking, come on, yeah. man. I mean, I, I, hey. you know, thanks, but, yeah, you know, we kind of yeah. like you to show up, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but you're doing such a great job, Wendell. Why can you hold on yeah. for a little longer? Hey, I, I, you know, that's a good point you make. I bet Fertig got on the got on the horn and, and, you know, radioed them and said, look, I am now in the deepest, worst part of the island. I'm in the, I'm in the, the, the swamp. Uh, basically, they've got me surrounded, in effect. Um can't you do something? Yeah. And I bet, I bet that's why those bombers showed up, now that you mention it. Yeah. Uh, they just probably it, said, okay, we'll just go tweak these guys just enough to let them know, okay, you guys are... You guys and are and he was guys. certainly needing some assistance at that time. Boy, he was. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. He, was, he, was in, he was in bad shape. But again, that's that good coordination to kind of know when, you know, when to apply pressure, when to kind of come off of it. Yeah. And he had just gotten to that point. I mean, he was, you know, yeah. it had just came to a head. I mean, everything he was doing. But the timing turned out, I mean, almost perfect. It did. It, 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 he, had, he had driven the, the, the Japanese to the point where they said, we will commit whatever. whatever. we got to get rid of this guy. we got to get rid yeah. of this yeah. guy. He was such a thorn in their side. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and if everything that we said, uh, something that I think out, uh, underlines uh, this guy's character is he just he could just persevere. I mean, it's the one word I think of when I think of, I mean, of course, he was socially astute and culturally intelligent, but he An just could just... excellent businessman. Yeah. yeah, excellent businessman. He could cast a vision, all those things, but he could just gut it out. I mean, because they got blown out of, if I if I remember, a lot of G-Base. Yeah. He was you on know? the move. He was yeah. on the move quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, the Japanese kept him kind of moving around. Yeah. And so they had, like you said, at one point down in the swamps... Uh, and after the umpteenth time, yeah, a lot of people would have just, or as we said today, uh, a lot of people would have just stayed in the jungle, which mm-hmm. they did, and just didn't, uh, you know, take a part in it. Didn't say, well, just throw my lot in here and do this. Yeah, yeah I mean, he could have done that. I mean, that would have uh, been easy. You would talk today about some tribes that have just recently mm-hmm. been discovered by the West, yeah. and they've been there for I don't know who got who yeah. knows how long. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's conceivable that you could have gone into the jungle, found some a group of people, mm-hmm. and just you know tossed your lot with them, yep. and just kind of rode it out. Yeah, if you could. You but he didn't do that. No, some Americans did it, but it, boy, you got to go in and live with some seriously rough conditions. But yes. if you can do that and, and are willing to do it, yeah, you could. If you knew how to. Get food and kept yourself from breaking a leg. And didn't piss them off. And didn't, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. You, can, you can live a pretty long time. Hey, something we haven't talked about, uh, I really wanted to ask you also is uh, just kind of pose your question. Uh, what impact 
having studied Verte back in, you wrote your dissertation as a major back in 1982. I'm just curious of what impact your study of Fertig and this uh, subset of irregular warfare had on your later commands? Um, surprisingly, probably, when I did the paper, uh, it was an academic exercise. I didn't go in to say, okay, I'm going to uh, understand and come up with uh, something about it. I didn't even know that he was a father of, one of three fathers of you know, special ops and the Green Berets. Uh, yeah, with along with uh, Volkman and uh, Banks. Yeah, right. I, I, I didn't really know that, and it wouldn't have probably wouldn't have carried any particular meaning at the time. I think if 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 I if I walked away with something that had an impact upon my career, it would be uh, just understanding yet another lesson on what a successful leader looks like. Yeah. What, what, uh, you certainly had some leadership qualities to emulate. I think respect for the people. If uh, you know, I you would run into to leaders, you know, in military business that just didn't respect the people that they work for, or particularly work for them. Yeah, you you pointed that out. He would uh, in his uh, early recruitment efforts to gain the Moros. Uh, it was not really uncommon for him to sit down for hours, yeah. three, four hours yeah. with a Moro Dato chief mm-hmm. to win him over. To show that respect, and he had to, and he had to talk to all the chiefs. He just couldn't go to the the senior guy. Right. Um, that's how d- disparate they were. That, that's they had to right. bring them together. Yeah. yeah. You had to negotiate with every. It'd be like negotiating with every single Indian tribe in the United States. Uh, you know, being abroad in Afghanistan, uh, uh, negotiating with every single. Local yeah, chieftain. Yeah, and yeah. I think he. Um, I mean, I you know I don't know, but I'm I would imagine on a lot of these trips. I mean, he was probably in these um, villages for quite quite a while. Yeah, uh, was intimately um, familiar with with the tribe. Mm-hmm. They knew who he was. He knew them. Mm-hmm. He he understood their customs, things that were important to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Jim Gant in American yeah. uh, Spartan. Willing to kind of go in there, uh, interact uh, very closely, yeah. mm-hmm. understand the people, yeah. uh, win their respect that way, mm-hmm. uh, not just you know a quick KLE if you will, and and run back to the fob and, and hit the gym and the and the, and the defect. Um, so I think there's some things that there are some really powerful takeaways from Wendell Fertig and kind of the way he did business. He had to be a, a real diplomat because he could walk in as, a, as an American, as a senior guy, he could walk into a village and be so celebrated that the village chieftain would offer his daughter in marriage to him. Well, that's... That's big. Uh, that's pretty big. That's, that's big. Yeah. But yeah. it happened, and he had to be able to, to somehow credibly mm-hmm. show and respect doing so, Yeah. say... Not the best idea. Not putting it that way, but but Tempting. letting them know that, that yeah. my custom that it doesn't fit with yeah. my custom. Yeah, right. I I honor your custom. Yeah, but please honor my custom, which means I can't do that. He was a man that was uh, not afraid to walk a fine line. Yeah, and he could, he did that a lot mm-hmm. in a lot of different areas. Yeah, he had to do that continually. Yeah, I mean, because think about that. I mean, we're usually tell you know uh, you know don't don't irritate the chieftain. You know, yeah. do whatever you need to do. <laughs> Um, but he was able to do that. He was able to still maintain the respect of the chieftain, but also, you know, understand that he was a, an American officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was taking orders from MacArthur, yeah. um, and he had to maintain, uh, you know, certain norms. Yeah. Um, but he was able to do that, which is impressive. Yeah. And also, the uh, objective, uh, really, objective uh, case study in grayscale war, uh, war. I mean, just look at all that, how gray that stuff was. Yes. I mean, there was a lot. Well, where's the where's the dividing line here? I mean, a lot of that was him just using his brain yeah, and, and kind of sensing the moment and what was what was needed at the moment. At, at the very beginning, he got a bad rep, but he made the right decision. He said, <clears throat> okay, I'm going to put out a proclamation. It says I'm here. I represent the U.S. government. I've been sent here. And I'm here to 
hold together and you know a, 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 an organization to work against the Japanese. Yeah. He put out his proclamation, but he signed it, Brigadier General. Pretty ballsy the move. Guys in, <laughs> and, and here's the interesting thing is he knew that in order to to have credibility with the Filipinos, he had to represent himself as something they respected. Right. If he'd come in and said, I'm a lieutenant colonel, reserve, uh, I'm a mining engineer, I'm here to run the organization to go kick ass, they just said, well, what about Morgan? What about what about Van What about these other Americans? Yeah, he wasn't calling. I mean, that's the important point yeah. too. I think you're making is he wasn't calling himself a general for himself. That's right. He, yeah. But MacArthur, being MacArthur, was thinking that because because his ego was this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He assumed he projected that Ferdinand. Here's a guy that wants to be a general. He's, he's ambitious. Be, yeah. He's a, he's he's to be. Yeah. Point. Feared because he's ambitious, but they slapped in, him down. And Wendell Fertig, he was just trying to get something done. He probably wouldn't care if they'd have called him a private. That's right. Yeah. He was there, he, he was he was being sent there to do a mission, yeah. and he knew what he needed to do to do that. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. So and willing to take the heat. Yeah, he's willing to take the heat. And that's too bad. He he just he knew that this group of people that he needed would recognize that and say, "Okay, that's great. We like it." <clears throat> The other people that he's, you know, his his people would say, well, you egotistical SOB, who do you think you are? Yeah. And he had to sit and make a choice. And then he got, you know, slapped down. They said no. They finally sent him the, uh, uh, I think it was. Uh, I mean, this guy, this guy was writing the doctrine that we use today yeah, on on so the fly. And the reason why we have the doctrine we have today is because he was successful and he figured it out. Mm -hmm. And we look back and we go, dang, you know, because yeah. um, most of us probably couldn't have done it even if, yeah. you know, For him knowing was, exactly what yeah. he did, we probably yeah. would have had some difficulties trying to even do what he did. Yeah. That's, that's precisely what they did. Uh, and you brought that out is uh, they got, you know, the Army and its wisdom brought Aaron Bank. Uh, Russell Volkman and Wendell Fertig, Fertig uh, to D.C. or Bragg or wherever they brought them. I can't remember. But they, uh, they actually uh, articulated the seven phases of the U.S.-sponsored insurgency, which is really based off this model that right. Fertig executed in Luzon and, uh, excuse me, Volkman and Luzon and Fertig and Mindanao. But, uh, yeah, that's, this is actually, that's why the book is awesome because it fleshes out the seven phases mm -hmm. uh, that we, we teach at the schoolhouse. And not only that, but the, uh, the insurgent support networks that are there, if you know them, uh, just kind of fly off the page. Kind of how to, how to, if you will. Yeah, it's, I don't think, you know, what's, what's beautiful about Wendell Fertig and, and your book, uh, Colonel Schmidt, is the fact that I think when we think about unconventional warfare, we think about guerrillas, we think there, there's always like... There, you know, we're, we're shooting something up or there's some sort of ambush happening or there's always kinetic activity. Mm -hmm. That is not the case. Mm -hmm. Unconventional warfare, really what Wendell Fertig taught us, was it's a lot of logistics. Yeah. It's a lot of politics. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of reading people, spending time with people, understanding what they're wanting to get out of this, making them happy, and just really kind of keeping this web of, mm -hmm. of activity all happy and surviving. Right, yeah. his, his, not 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 being decimated. That's right. His very yeah. first imperative was survive. Yeah, yeah. If I don't survive, nothing's going to happen. So first, I've got to survive, and then I've got to bring people around me mm. that are willing to, to dedicate themselves to this cause. Establishing those networks that you can trust. Yeah, you yeah. Know, which you did with the church and yeah, yeah. you know other places, the village chieftains. Yeah, Colonel Schmidt. <laughs> Colonel Schmidt, I mean, we are honored to have yeah, you in Pineland. Thank you. Thank thank you. you. Yeah, um, my pleasure. Yeah, I mean, this is this is going to be huge. It's it's a yeah. it's a it's a difficult subject for a lot of people, uh, to include myself, to get my kind of head wrapped around it. You're always learning from these things, mm -hmm. and uh, I think you've made it a lot easier for at least for me and a lot of people. Definitely. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. guys did a great job 
We were just uh, honored to have you. And uh, yeah, for our listeners, the book is entitled uh, title Fire in the Jungle, subtitled uh, One of America's Most Successful Unconventional Warfare Campaigns. The author is retired Colonel Larry Schmidt. Uh, you can go to the Blacksmith Publishing website and get one of those bad boys. And uh, But yeah, we I'm a better man for having met you finally Thank in the you. flesh. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I will be honest, uh, full disclosure, all the cool things you said, I'm going to rip it off, and I'm going to play it <laughs> off like it's mine. So on the next class, Feel I'm just going to use it and get a lot of tread out of all out. this awesome sauce. So, yeah. Thank you, sir.